Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Mary and Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Well, tonight we begin to draw toward the end of our study of Peter's life. And uh, we have subtitled his life from fisherman to follower of Jesus. We've been down a long road with him. This is the 21st lesson um, in this series. Tonight, the title of our lesson is Peter's Miraculous Deliverance. Peter's Miraculous Deliverance. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you desperately wanted a miraculous deliverance? Probably every single one of us, either for ourselves. For a loved one, we faced a situation, any kind of situation. It can be physical, it can be mental, it can be a job, whatever it is. And it's like, unless God does something miraculously, we may be in trouble. And I'm sure we've all wrestled with the thoughts and the ideas of what does it take to get God to do something miraculously? Because sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. Is there some kind of key? Is there some kind of... A trick? Is there some kind of special formula? Is there some kind of special steps I can take? What does it take? And we won't get all our questions answered tonight, but from this story of Peter's miraculous deliverance, I think we can draw some principles that we can um, that we can put our hope in, and that we can use to strengthen our faith and encourage us when we face those things. Have you ever been in a situation when you were needing a miraculous deliverance and you had these questions go through your mind? And you may hesitate to say, yeah, that's me because it doesn't sound real spiritual. But to be honest, have you ever had the questions like, is God really paying attention to what's going on in my life? Does he really care? Does he really respond to my needs and prayers? Are things ever going to work out right? Have you ever felt that way? Yeah, I think even the most mature Christians can feel that way. All right. When is it that we most feel like that? When is it we most feel like, is God really paying attention? Does he really care? Is he really going to do anything? Chris? Okay. So when you hit rock bottom and there's no help anywhere else and nothing's happening, right? Yeah, when things are going wrong and you don't see any results to your prayers. You don't see, you don't feel anything. It's like, God, I know what your word says. I even know what I've experienced before, but where are you at now? You know? When is it that we're most confident that God's in control and he's taking care of me and all that kind of stuff. When everything's going right, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, 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 I've mentioned this many times, you know, read the story of the Israelites and God delivers them from Egypt and they're celebrating and they march out and they've got gold and silver because the Egyptians are just, get out of here. Here's our gold. Here's our silver. Go, 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 you know. And then um, they have this little thing where they get backed up against the Red Sea and like, God, where are you at? And God delivered them through the Red Sea. And they're all excited. They have this great praise and worship service on the other bank after the Egyptians are all wiped out. And then over the next couple of months, it's back and forth and back and forth. They're complaining to God because they don't have enough to drink. Then God gives them something to drink. They're all excited. Then they're complaining they don't have enough to eat. And then God gives them something to eat. And they're all excited. And it's like we look at it and say, how in the world can they go so up and down, up and down so quick after all God's done, and then we look at our own lives, and it's like, oh, that's how they do that. Because we have a tendency to do the same thing, you know? It's like, God, what have you done for me today? And so, anyway, but God helps us to grow and mature. 
So anyway, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 12, the whole chapter actually tonight. We're going to try to work through the chapter relatively quick so we can get to the application. But the background is, if you've been following along, if you haven't, um, Peter was called by God to go to Cornelius's house, who was a Gentile um, centurion. He was a Roman. And uh, God had spoken to Cornelius because Cornelius loved God to send an angel for Peter because Peter had some good news for him, how to be saved. Peter normally would not go because as a good Jewish boy, and even as a Jewish Christian, you don't have anything to do with Gentiles. You don't go in their houses, you don't eat with them, you don't have any contact with them unless you absolutely have to. But God let him know very clearly, don't call something unclean that I've said is clean. And so he went, God miraculously saved Cornelius, his household, all a bunch of friends and relatives and servants that had gathered together, filled him with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues. And Peter's like, oh my goodness, God is saving Gentiles. And so he goes back to Jerusalem and controversial news travels fast. <laughs> and they'd already heard about it. And there are people that are like, Peter, what in the world do you think you were doing? And so Peter defends himself, tells them exactly what happened and how God himself had confirmed that it was the right thing to do and that God himself had accepted even Gentiles to be Christians. And so the church, um, they accepted his explanation. Things settled down a little bit. It's still going to be an issue they're going to deal with for a little bit. We'll see that more next week in our story from Acts chapter 15. But um, immediately after things died down, um, at the end of chapter 11, uh, God raises up a Gentile church in the city of Antioch. And Barnabas goes there to check it out. He becomes the pastor. He needs an associate pastor, so he goes and finds Paul. Paul becomes his associate pastor. So this whole story about Peter and Cornelius is kind of the introduction to these Gentiles begin to flood the church. All right, And now it jumps right back to look at Peter's life again, and that's where we pick it up in Acts chapter 12. So we're going to read through the story a little bit at a time, explain what's going on, and then see how it might apply to um, our need for miraculous deliverance sometimes. The first part of the story is King Herod kills James. King Herod kills James. Verses 1 and 2 of Acts 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. We'll stop right there. James, the brother of John. There's a number of Jameses in the New Testament. James, John, Peter, all three of those were very, very common names. You know, we're so used to such a variety of names. It wasn't that way before. You know, I, 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 didn't, I read one time that Mary, in New Testament times, almost one-fifth of the ladies that were alive at that time had the name Mary. You know, there's a lot of names, a lot of James in the Bible. This one is James, the brother of John. James and John were some of the first uh, disciples that were chosen by Jesus. They were fishermen, just like Peter and Andrew. And it's really interesting. James is going to... is going to be the first of the disciples slash apostles that we put to death. And John is going to be the last of the disciples slash apostles that we put to death. Okay? And so it says that Herod um, laid violent hands and he killed James with the sword, which means he probably had his head cut off. Now, there's a number of Herods in the Bible, too. You know, you read through the New Testament, it's like every time you turn around, Herod's there. Well, it's not always the same Herod. Okay, this Herod is actually the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one that tried to put Jesus to death as a baby. All right. And he's also the nephew of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the one that put John the Baptist 
to death. So Herod the Great isn't the one that put John the Baptist. It was Herod Antipas. All right. And um, he's also the one that tried Jesus. Okay. So um, this is another Herod who's been put into place. And the thing that's interesting about this Herod is that he's a Roman, but he had great sympathy for the Jewish people. So he became a Jewish proselyte. Now, all the persecution we've read up to up read about up to this point has been the Jewish religious leaders persecuting the church. Here's the first account we have of a Roman persecuting the church, and he's doing it to gain favor with the Jewish people. Okay? And so he just decides to start persecuting. He arrests James, and it says he puts him to death with a sword, which probably means he has his head cut off. So the second part of the story is Herod arrests Peter, planning to kill him also. Pick it up in verse 3. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, that he putting John to death, it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So Herod sees that putting James to death makes the religious leaders and a great portion or a portion of the Jewish population very, very heavy. He says, this is a good political move. Let me arrest another one. And so he arrests Peter. And he's going to put him to death too, but he's waiting because they're in the midst of the, uh, in the, midst of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It's an eight-day celebration. There's seven days that are part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and then Passover. And he says, once that's over with, then I'm going to bring him out publicly, make a big spectacle of it, and I'm going to put him to death too. And so um, he's going to wait because this is a holy time, and you're not supposed to desecrate it. It's holy time with an execution. But he, he puts him under great guards. There's four squads. Each squad has four soldiers. Sixteen guys are tasked with guarding Peter. Now, it may have been four at a time over four shifts, but that's still a lot. We're going to read later on in the story in just a moment that Peter is actually chained to two of them, okay? One on each side, and the other two are basically standing guard, and there are other guards around too. Why do you think Herod puts so many guards on Peter? Is it because Peter's such a violent man? Because he's a what? Because he's God's man? Well, why would Herod... Because things happen inside God's in prisons when, when it's God's people. Yeah, chains fall off. You know, Peter's got a history. Herod probably knows the history. Peter's been arrested a couple times already. And one time he wasn't set free by God, but another time he was. You know, you may remember it's been a while. Earlier in the book of Acts, Peter and John were arrested, tried, and then released. But then it says all the apostles were arrested. And an angel came and released them all from prison in the middle of the night. Nobody knew what was going on, so when the religious leaders say, bring him into court, it's like, well, they're not in jail anymore. Where'd they go? I don't know. And somebody comes, oh, they're back in the temple talking about Jesus. <laughs> you know. So Peter has a reputation, all right? And so Herod uses some very strong security uh, measures. In verse 5, it says, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. We're going to see in a little bit the church is meeting together in a special place praying for Peter. It seems to indicate for several days, maybe several days and nights, maybe a 24-hour thing, we don't know. But it says earnest prayer. What does earnest prayer mean? 
What does that make you think of? Earnest prayer. Consistent? Okay. What other words would be good to describe earnest prayer? Okay. Got to get it done. Emergency intensity. Yeah. All right. Chris? Modern day all night prayer meeting. Yeah, I'm sure it was sort of like that. Passion, intensity, you know, um, just a thought that, you know, not all of our prayers have to be like, oh, ratcheted up to a certain level. But we don't want them to kind of just drop down to where it's just, oh, I'm just mumbling the words that I've memorized. And, and we can fall into that trap, can't we? You know, especially praying over meals or whatever. We just get so used to praying the same thing. I, I've testified before, you know, as a pastor, I pray publicly a lot of times. And I've got to be very, very careful that I'm really praying what I'm thinking about, what's in my heart and meaningfully, and not just saying words, both publicly and in my own private devotions, which is just me. It's so easy because I've prayed so many prayers over the years, you know, to, I, could, I could pray for a long time without thinking about it at all, you know, and we don't want it to be that way. So anyway, so in the natural, how does this situation look for Peter, especially in light of what happened to James? I'm dead. <laughs> I'm dead. Yeah, it's hopeless, right? Without God, this situation is hopeless, and that's where I said that we can kind of relate. Sometimes we're in a situation that's like, if God doesn't do something, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how I'm going to make it, right? Okay, next part of the story is an angel delivers Peter. And I mentioned Sunday about how there's humor in the Bible. We don't always see it. But there's some humor in here because God uses an angel to deliver Peter. And Peter doesn't even realize it's real. He thinks he's dreaming, okay? So let's pick it up in verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out... On that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side. I like that. God turns on the light. Peter probably goes, turn the light on, I'm sleeping. (laughs) I'm reading some stuff in here. And so the angel kind of kicks him in the side. Come on, get up, wake up. Okay. And uh, so anyway, he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself. Put on your shirt. He's having to tell Peter everything to do. Peter's just kind of standing there. He's like, Well, this is a dream. I'm just going to see what's going to happen. You know, Dress yourself. Put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. It's just just so funny because he thinks he's in a dream, so he's not going to do anything, and the angel has to keep telling him what to do. And they go right past the guards, and the guards don't even notice. I guarantee you these guards were not sleeping, okay? Because there's a tremendous penalty. In fact, these guards are going to suffer because of what God does, all right? In, in, in their culture, if you were guarding a prisoner and that prisoner got away, whatever punishment that prisoner was supposed to experience, that's what you experienced. And we're going to see in a minute that Herod has all these guards put to death. And because of that, you don't, you don't go to sleep. Apparently, they were blinded or... Whatever. And um, so anyway, the angel leads him out. And, and I could just picture the, the gate just swinging open, you know. And uh, he's walking down there. And finally, he's like, oh, I'm not in a dream. This is a, 
This is a real thing. Now, going back to the beginning, though, it says that Peter, even though I said, in my opinion, the guards are not asleep. You know, I can't imagine them. But it says Peter is sleeping. How can Peter sleep in the midst of this, knowing the next day he's going to be put to death? What? He's relaxed? How can he be relaxed? Because his heart's right with God. Yeah, he knows God's in control. Chris? Okay. He got to acceptance. All right. All right. So he was miraculously delivered. I mean, so many different things. The chains just fall off of him. The guards don't notice. Gates open by themselves. Um, again, there's two he's chained to, two at the door, but it says they pass other guards too. So it's a bunch of guards and just miraculous. Okay, fourth part of the story, Peter goes to Mary's house. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is not Mary Magdalene. Um, this is another Mary we don't know much about other than she has a son named Mark. Very important son named Mark. He's not important right now, but he's going to be. So we pick up the story in verse 12. When he realized this, that this isn't a dream, it's real, okay? He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, John Mark, okay? Where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda, um, which in English is basically like Rose, okay? Um, Very similar. Came to answer, Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing. Here's some more human humor. Was standing at the gate. They said to her, "You are out of your mind." But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, "It's his angel." But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, "Tell these things to James and to the brothers." Then he departed and went to another place. He's not going to, uh, he, he's not going to be presumptuous that just because God delivered him, he should just parade around publicly because God didn't tell him to. He says, told the church he was delivered. He's like, I'm going to hiding. Okay, I'm going somewhere else. So we've got a number of facts here. It says he's going to Mary's house, and she's the mother of John Mark. John Mark um, is one of Peter's converts, okay? And he spent a lot of time with Peter eventually. Peter had given him special training. In fact, in 1 Peter 5, 17, Peter calls him my son Mark. That's not literal, but what that probably means is that he was probably the one that led Mark to the Lord and or took responsibility for his growth and relationship in the Lord. Okay, This is the same Mark that um, is a cousin or nephew to Barnabas. All right, It says that in Colossians 4. Um, and he traveled with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, but he got cold feet and went back. So when Paul and Barnabas want to go on the second missionary journey, Barnabas says, let's see if John Mark's available. Take him with us. And Paul says, uh-uh. He ditched us. We're not taking him. And it became such a contentious thing between him and Barnabas that they split, which God used that so they could go on two missionary journeys. You know, But we do know that Paul and John Mark were reconciled eventually because in it's either 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy at the end of Paul's life. He's writing Timothy and he's, he talks about Mark and he says, Mark is so special to me. So they've been reconciled and everything had been worked out. That's a great story. So anyway, it says it goes to her house, and um, it seems to indicate they're in an upper room. This could have been the same house where they had the Last Supper and or that prayer meeting leading up to Pentecost. And it says they're still praying. Uh, They may have been praying day and night. So it says a servant girl goes to the gate. 
So that indicates it's a very wealthy home. They have a servant girl. But, but it's just so funny because she, she caught, she, she's not going to open the gate. She says, who is it? It's Peter. She gets so excited she doesn't even open the gate. She goes inside. Peter's here. Where? Oh, he's out there. <laughs> no, it must be his ghost. There was this Jewish belief. It's not biblical that when a person died, their angel could kind of take their form and kind of look like them or something like that. And um, so anyway, um, it's like, no way, no way. And so they let him in, and it really is Peter. And so he tells them to tell James um, that God has rescued him. Um, this is another James. This isn't the James that has been put to death. Peter's not going to say, tell the guy they just killed that I've been rescued. Okay, this James is actually the brother of Jesus, or, or stepbrother of Jesus. And um, he became a believer after the resurrection, and he's become a leader of the church. In fact, if you read the rest of the book of Acts, you find out that he's actually the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Peter gets out of town. Peter's been the leader of the church in Jerusalem, but now he gets out of town. He comes back. We see it in Acts 15. But now James is the head of the church. And uh, just a little side note, James is going to be put to death um, by stoning because of his faith in AD 61. Okay? And um, so anyway... Now, if you could imagine when Herod calls for Peter to be brought before him and Peter's not there, how do you think Herod felt? Outraged? Frustrated? Angry? Yeah? Disappointed? Disgusted? Embarrassed? Any number of these things. And that leads us into the last part of the story and the last part of the chapter, Herod's response and death. Okay? Starting in verse 18. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Can you imagine the next morning, you know, and it seems to indicate that basically they remain blinded all night long. But when morning comes, it's like, wait a minute, where's Peter? He was just here, you know, and they know they're in trouble. They know what the law requires of them um, because they let Peter escape. So anyway, there's no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had happened to Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So he's in Jerusalem, which is the Jewish capital, but the Roman capital is Caesarea. That's also where Cornelius lives. You may remember that. It's about 30 or 60 miles away. And so he goes down to the capital, and that's where he actually lives. He just comes to Jerusalem for festivals and things like that. Going on in verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. It's a little historical thing. There was this tiff between Herod and these people, and so he wasn't giving them food. They, we need food. So they're trying to get this all worked out. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Now, this is actually a couple of years later. But basically um, Herod and these people had this tip. They come and he's, he's in his royal robes. There's a Jewish historian who is not a Christian. Um, he's one of the main sources we have outside the Bible for things about Jesus and the early church and New Testament history. And he talks about this. 
He said the robe that he put on was kind of like silver coated, so it was all flashy in the sunshine. So Herod gets up and makes the speech. And of course, these people are trying to get on Herod's good side. They say, oh, you're a god. You're not a man. You're a god. You're not a man. And Herod is supposedly a good Jewish proselyte now. What should he respond? No, 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 I'm not God. There's only one true God. But he doesn't do that. He takes that glory. He takes that honor. So God says, that's it. And so God strikes him. And it says he was eaten by worms. Josephus said he lasted five days being eaten up from the inside out. Okay? It's God's judgment on him. Okay? He was in agonizing pain. But it says the word of God increased and multiplied. All right. So that's the story we have in this chapter. And um, chances are we probably will not be arrested for our faith with the plans to put us to death. Could happen. Take a lot of things to change for that to happen, but it could. But, uh, and there's probably a good chance that God's not going to send an angel that we will see to bring some kind of miraculous deliverance. But I think there's principles in this story that we can still apply to our lives. Okay? Before we jump into the ones that I have, what are some things that maybe you see in this story that we can draw from it to encourage us, challenge us, and help us when we're facing difficulty and we really need a miraculous deliverance? Do you see any principles or thoughts or ideas here that encourage you? Janet? Having peace, no matter what you're facing, knowing God's in control. Yeah, we're gonna get, that's one of the ones I've got down here. What else do you see in this story? Anybody? What? If you see the light, wake up. <laughs> you know, we can make that prayer. Look for God's deliverance. Yeah. Yeah. Chris? You know, we're going to talk about this in a minute, but what you just said, and I'll repeat it for the recording, um, people would say, well, half of that's encouraging. And that is if you get into a difficult situation where things are helpless and hopeless and it's, the consequences are dire, God could deliver you like he did Peter or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or he may not. You could die like James. But that's actually a blessing too. We'll get to that in a moment. So, Any other thoughts from this story that can be encouraging when you're going through difficulty? Tim? There are no walls that can keep God or his servants out. And there's no change that can hold us down. A lot of songs talk about that, don't they? And you didn't mention this, but it's there too. The Bible makes it very clear that there are angels all around us. And that angels, Hebrews tells us that angels are God's servants on behalf of his people. Now, it doesn't say that the angels are God's people's servants. We don't have the authority to boss angels around. They're God's servants, but he uses them on behalf of his people. Okay. And so it would be entirely appropriate that we don't make theology out of it to pray God send some angels, you know, to get involved in the situation or release them, you know, to do something. All right, well, let's jump into some of the principles I drew from this story that I think can really encourage us. Number one, God has a unique plan for each of us. God has a unique plan for each of us. Now, why did God let James die, but he delivered Peter? Is it because he liked Peter better? Is it because Peter was a better Christian? Is it because Peter had more faith? We're all saying no, but we don't know that 100%, but I agree with you. So why did God let James just be cut his head off? But then he delivered Peter, and Peter lived for maybe another 20, 30 years. I can't remember exactly when this took place, but I know Peter lived a long time after this. Church tradition says he was crucified upside down in Rome. Why did he let James be killed, but 
delivered Peter, Tim. Yeah. To summarize what Tim said, that, that James was actually blessed by God. You know, you could almost make a case for the fact that God loved James more than he loved Peter. He says, James, I'm taking you on home, buddy. Peter's got to stick it out down here for another 20, 30 years. And he's going to go through all this stuff. And he's going to end up dying being crucified upside down. But you know what? We're so used to life and the idea of leaving this life and everything in this life, and the, especially the people in this life, we think of death as a sad thing or whatever when it actually could be very much of a blessing. But, yeah, yeah, Norris. Well, death and taxes. Taxes are pretty sure. Only two things that are sure in this life, death and taxes, right. That's right. The answer is actually the point. Why did God let James die but deliver Peter? Because God has a unique plan for each of us. You know, something we can, we can know for a fact, and that is that no, nobody can put us to death. No circumstance can kill us until God allows it. Okay? Now, that doesn't give us the right to tempt fate, as the saying would go, or to deliberately put ourselves in dangerous situations or not take care of ourselves because that is presuming we're calling God. That would be along the lines of when the devil tempted Jesus and said, cast yourself off the temple, you know, because God will take care of you. We don't need to go through life saying, well, I'm going to walk through traffic and not care because God won't let me die unless it's my time. And God will just say, yeah, it's your time because you're very foolish. (laughs) If you wouldn't have been so foolish, maybe it wouldn't have been your time. You know, I mean, how God's sovereignty and our choices work together is one of the great enigmas of Scripture. But they do work together. Um, But we don't have to fear death, you know, if we've got our relationship with God. So only God knows why James was to die then and Peter didn't, but he knows what's best. And this should be encouraging to us. We, We need to make sure that we don't assume that because God seems to be treating somebody else better than us, that he loves us less. But we all wrestle with that, don't we? We see somebody else that doesn't seem to have as many problems as we do, although we don't know that for sure. They could. And God seems to be blessing them a whole lot more than us. And what really is frustrating is when we look at our life, say, I'm serving God better than he is, and look at the blessings God's putting on his life. And I can use some of those in mine. You know? And we don't need to let the devil get in with a foothold and say, well, God loves him more than he loves you. God has a unique plan for each one of us. Janet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it creates jealousy, envy, covetousness. We need to fight against that. So we don't need to assume that God, because God seems to be treating someone else better than us, that he loves us less. But that should not rule out and say, well, yeah, they seem to have life better and whatever, but I'm good. We still need to examine our lives because there could be things in our lives that we've allowed to be there that are holding us back from all of God's blessing. That happens for each of us too. So we still have an accountability. The second thing that I drew from this, is God always delivers us from evil. And uh, we already talked about I was going to ask you, is that true of James? I mean, did God really deliver him? Of course he did. He took him out of this world. He didn't have to suffer a lot of the things that the other apostles did. Uh, he actually delivered him of a whole lot more. Um, and the thing is, is that we've got to realize that it's easy to look at this and say, well, the rest of the apostles are going to go through intense persecution. You know, and you put Paul in the mix too, you know, stoning and beatings and, and hardships and all that kind of stuff. And we look at that and say, yeah, maybe he did really bless James. But we have a harder time applying that to our lives. When one of our loved ones dies, 
prematurely to us. It's like, God, why? You know, do we really look at that as a blessing? If they knew him, it is a blessing for them. We're praying for somebody to get healed. And it's like, I just got to have, have faith. God's going to heal him. God's gonna... And then God doesn't heal them, and they die. But you know what? God did heal them. <laughs> That's the ultimate healing. We say that kind of flippantly, but it is true. Death is the ultimate healing. We just don't like it because we don't want those people to be gone. You know? It's the ultimate. So God always delivers from evil. He may do it in this life and we keep living for a while or the person we're praying for. Or he may take them home and it's still deliverance. Yes. Yes. I saw a hand. Tim. Does Jesus care? That song, yeah. Yep. All right, number three. If we trust God, and that's the hard part, we can have peace in the midst of crisis. If we trust God, we can have peace in the midst of crisis. We see Peter sleeping soundly in prison. There's a bunch of Psalms. I only chose two of them. But Psalm 4.8 says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. But does this really apply to Peter, that God made Peter dwell in safety? I mean, he's in prison. He's going to be put to death in the morning. Does it apply? Is Peter in safety? Sure, because he's still in God's hands. Psalm 3. I've got to read a good portion of this to you. Psalm 3 is a psalm that David wrote when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. Remember, his son Absalom got all upset and whatever, and he decides to basically take over the throne. He's going to put his father to death. Okay, And this is what David wrote in Psalm 3. I'm just going to read verses 1 to 6. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God, Salah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Salah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Peter's got... Four guards right around him and some other guards further out. David's in a situation where he's got thousands of people chasing him down under the leadership of his son, Absalom, who wants to kill his father. And he says, Lord, this is terrible, but you know what? I am in the palm of your hand, and I can lay down in sleep knowing that you are in control. And so, as I read the point, if we trust God, we can have peace in the midst of the crisis. The trusting God is the hard part, right? Yeah. So may God increase our faith and help us to really trust him that no matter what we're going through, we know that God's in control. He's going to take care of us and we can sleep. All right? All right, number four, prayer makes a real difference. Prayer makes a difference. You know, I even said something like this when I was praying tonight. It's like God can do whatever he wants. He doesn't need us to pray or give him permission to do anything. But yet God's word says specifically that our prayers make a difference because God chooses to do things in partnership with his people. The word of God seems to indicate that there are certain things that God could do, but he's not going to do it unless his people pray about it. That's why our prayers are so important. Okay, James 5.16 says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So don't give up. Number five, this can be very encouraging. Even faulty faith can reap results. You know, I think of the church, right? 
Herod puts James to death and arrests Peter, and it's obvious he's made it publicly known that he's going to put him to death after the Passover. Because when Peter's delivery says that, oh, thank God, he delivered me from all the things the Jews are expecting. All right? So the church knows that Peter's supposed to be put to death. And James has been. So they are praying. They're praying over a long period of time, maybe day and night, several days. God deliver Peter. God deliver Peter. God deliver Peter. And then when God delivers Peter, it's like, no, that can't be Peter. (laughs) Their faith was not perfect. But God honored it. You know? God honored it. Now, this is not an excuse to not trust God or not grow in faith. It's just a picture of where they were at a time. In fact, God used that, I'm sure, to increase their faith. Reminds me of the story in Mark chapter 9 when Peter and James and John and have gone up on the top of the mountain with Jesus and they have the Mount of Transfiguration, blah, 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 blah. Down at the foot of the mountain, this man brings his son who's demon-possessed. The demon casts him into a fire. He has seizures and, and he wants Jesus to deliver him, but Jesus isn't there. So he asks the disciples to pray and deliver him, and they pray and they do whatever they know to do, and the demon doesn't come out. And then Jesus comes down and says, what's going on? And say, well, your disciples couldn't cast him out, and Jesus had a couple of things to say. But then Jesus turns to this man, and, he, and, and after the man gives a description of what this demon is doing to his son, in Mark chapter 9, verses 22 to 24, the man says, but you can do anything, or no, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He's been discouraged. He came to Jesus believing Jesus could do something, but then when his disciples couldn't, I think he's discouraged. He says, but Jesus, if you can do something, would you do something? And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. (laughs) And it was, Lord, I have some faith, but I don't know if it's enough. And I don't know about you, but I can relate to that. You know, we're all in a different place. Our faith is growing, and hopefully it's growing consistently. But when Jesus said that all it takes is faith the size of a mustard seed, he's not like chewing his disciples out saying, you don't even have that much. He's just saying, it doesn't take all that much faith. Just use the faith you have. Okay? All right. The last one, number six. God's plan will ultimately be victorious. The beginning of the chapter, Herod killed James, put Peter in jail. It all looks helpless and hopeless, at least in the natural. I like the way John Stott, he is a great theologian, Bible scholar. He said this, The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. God can turn anything around. So, what did you say, Lisa? He works in our favor. So, as we wrap this up, you know, this isn't just a mental Bible study as good as that might be and as encouraging it might be. But I just want to say this. What is going on in your life that seems hopeless or at least overwhelming right now? And you may be sitting here saying, you know, right now everything's pretty cool. The the things don't seem so bad. But there could be some people that are in this room or people listening to the recording later that it's like, yeah, right now i got some things going on in my life that seem pretty helpless or pretty hopeless. Or maybe it's not me but a family member or whatever. And just say that God wants to encourage you tonight. Are you praying about it? Don't give up. Keep praying about it. If you haven't started praying about it, pray about it. And know that God has a unique plan for your life and for your situation. And he knows what's going on and he can bring victory as you trust in him. But that victory may not look like you think it will look like. And it may not be exactly what you're asking for either. But do you have enough faith to say, God, I'm asking for deliverance 
And this is what I think I'd like it to look like. But I'm going to trust you for whatever you give me, not just for what I ask you for. You know? And the good news is, is if you can truly trust him, you can have peace in the midst of those circumstances, no matter what they are. And God will help you, and God will help you sleep. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for a time to look at Peter and his life from your word. And God, I thank you that you do miraculously deliver us so many times. Sometimes it's exactly what we're looking for and what we're asking for, and sometimes it's not. But God, if we really believe your word, you are a good, good father, as that song says. And as we trust in you, you will do what you know is best long term. Thank you, Lord. I pray, dear God, for each and every person that's here or maybe listening to this later. And they've got a big situation in their life. Maybe the enemy's kind of stuck his foot in there and to try to get them to doubt your goodness and to doubt your attention and to doubt your involvement. And I just pray that their faith would be strengthened tonight and they'd be encouraged to know that you are in control. You know what's going on. You are at work. And by faith, trust you for that. And I pray if there's anybody that's been having a hard time sleeping, it's a very practical thing, but been having a hard time sleeping because of what's going on in their life, that as they meditate on this and draw their strength from the truths in this lesson, that you would give them a good night's sleep. Father, we thank you and we praise you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org.